and paint the brick mauve. I'm upset about the changes, but Hazel doesn't seem to mind that the house will lose its historic character. She never was crazy about the place, but by the time her mother died, she'd lived there too long to be comfortable anywhere else. Besides, as Walter put it, Bess Truman didn't sell her mother's house. Of course, we're all worried that before she can move into the retirement home, Hazel will hurt herself lifting boxes and hauling junk from the attic to the alley, but she won't let anybody help her. Shoes us away, in fact, when we go over on some transparent errand. Hazel's not just being stubborn. Sorting through one hundred years of family accumulations is traumatic, and she's got her pride. Hazel's never been one to show emotion, and she doesn't intend to start now. She didn't shed a tear at Walter's funeral. The only time I ever saw Hazel cry, in fact, was when I rushed over to tell her that John F. Kennedy had just been shot. She'd already heard the news on the radio, and she was sitting in the kitchen, sobbing. Sharing our grief that day became one of the many bonds between us. Although Hazel won't let me help with the heavy lifting, I've been keeping an eye on her as she makes trips back and forth from the house to the dumpster, or runs up and down the stairs of the carriage house, which never once housed a carriage. Hazel's conservative father owned a car when he built the place, but he wasn't convinced that automobiles were here to stay, so he erected a carriage house instead of a garage, in case horses made a comeback. Since I try to keep track of where Hazel is, I knew that she was in the attic of the carriage house when she called out to me in an alarmed voice one afternoon. I was gardening, and I rushed through the gate that connects our yards, yelling up through the open hayloft door. Are you all right? Come up, dearie, Hazel cried in a voice that held more exasperation than panic. Nonetheless, I took the narrow stairs two at a time, and I found Hazel bent over in the center of the room at about the spot where the new people intend to put in a hot tub. I've gotten so clumsy lately. I let the trunk lid slam shut on my dress and now I'm caught. I can't reach over there to lift the lid, and if I try to pull out my dress, I'll rip it. Can you believe it? Pinned to a trunk by my skirt. I carefully lifted the lid, and Hazel straightened up, examining her skirt for tears. I ran my hand over the soft black leather of the old trunk. It was handmade, put together with brass nails that had turned black with tarnish. The inside was lined with mattress ticking, now soiled and torn. An oval brass plate on the front of the trunk was engraved, M.F.M.S. Mingo. C.T. The trunk belonged to my grandmother. Those are her initials, Hazel explained when she saw me rubbing my hand over the ornate lettering. Mingo is in the eastern part of the state. It's almost a ghost town now. The C.T. isn't Connecticut. It stands for Colorado Territory. Grandmother came out here before Colorado was a state, which means sometime prior to 1876. Hazel dropped the hem of her skirt. No harm done, except to my pride. All that trouble for nothing, too.
There wasn't a thing left in that trunk. I must have cleaned it out last week. Yes, there is, I said, peering inside. Over there in the corner, it's a book. I reached inside and picked up a worn leather volume that lay on the mattress ticking. Maybe it fell out of the lid when it slammed shut. There's a sort of hidden compartment in the top. Look. I pointed at a four-inch square of cardboard covered with a trunk manufacturer's label, which hung down from inside the bow-top lid. It had covered an opening. That stick lying in the bottom of the trunk must have held the flap shut. See, it goes through the two brass loops on either side of the opening to pin this piece of cardboard in place. I held the label flat against the lid and pushed the stick through the two loops. It's pretty obvious, so it's not really much of a hiding place. Hazel removed the stick.